So far in this series, uh, if you are kind of just joining us, I've been saying this every week, but what we've really been doing is looking into the book of Acts to see how we as a church can maybe improve and grow as a church to be more like the New Testament church, to be more like what the church and the foundation of the church actually is, and to not take it into their context, but to put what they did into our context so that we can be the church that God intended for us to be. And so far in the series, we've talked about how the early church was empowered by the Holy Spirit with the, and, and were given the necessary gifts to reach the people in their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a passion to share the gospel with everyone that they encountered throughout all of the book of Acts. There's not, it doesn't seem like there's a chapter that goes by where the gospel isn't preached to someone. They also did just about everything together. They prayed together. They ate together, often multiple, multiple times a day. They saw healing. They endured persecution. You see those throughout just about every chapter. You'll see someone was healed. You'll see someone was persecuted. Some of their foundational pieces was that they had a good theology and doctrine, which basically means, and we'll kind of see this today, they focused on the truth of God's word instead of their own opinions and their own ideas of what God's word is supposed to be to them. They always looked for the truth. So they had a good theology and doctrine. They were dedicated to prayer. Oftentimes they would pray three times together every single day uh, as, as a group, but then they would also pray on their own as well. They were dedicated to prayer, to communicating with God. They're also focused on discipleship. They didn't just want to leave people hanging dry. They wanted to make sure that they were intentional about building relationships and helping other people find their purpose in Christ. Now, throughout this series, I've challenged you and encouraged you that we can't possibly go through all of the details of every single chapter that we go through in this series. God laid on my heart for this series to only be so long. And what that means is that we can't go through all 28 chapters of Acts in detail and focus on each one. Honest to goodness, we could take one chapter and have a series that lasts for a year and still have new material. But I'm not going to do that to you because I'm scared that that might bore you to be talking about all the little Greek things and, and how the Greek laid it out and then how all of the original language and what they meant. And then like, that's a Bible study. <laughs> this, is, this is Sunday morning. So I've been encouraging you to go in your own study throughout the week look through all of the chapters, read it a couple times, study it, so that today is an introduction for you, but that you go deeper throughout the week. And this week, we're looking at Acts chapter 13, 14, and 15. That's three chapters. I know it's a lot, but it's worth it. Now, I'm only going to focus on chapter 15. The reason for that is that there's a lot in those chapters. And God laid on my heart to do chapter 15 today, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and catch you up, give you the very, 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 very condensed version of chapters 13 and 14. It's not that they're not important. It's just what God is telling me to focus on today. But here's the condensed version. Saul, who is also called Paul, and Barnabas, they're sent on this missionary journey. They're at the church in Antioch. And while they're worshiping and fasting with the church, they get this call, they, they, the Spirit comes and places on their heart that they need to go to all of these different places and preach the gospel. And so the church in Antioch prayed over them and sent them off. Throughout the two chapters, they visit all of these different places. They share the gospel with all of them. You'll see this phrase, 
they strengthened and encouraged them, or encouraged them and strengthened them in the faith. This means that they went to these churches and they discipled them. But this is one of three of the missionary journeys of Paul. Now notice I didn't say Paul and Barnabas because at the end of chapter 15, Barnabas and Paul kind of split their ways. They go separate ways. They have a disagreement. They leave each other. And then Silas and uh, Tom, or Timothy, I almost said Thomas, Timothy comes in uh, and they uh, accompany Paul. But it's the three missionary journeys of Paul. Now during these missionary journeys, we'll talk about them later because they show up multiple times in the book of Acts. They preach the gospel. They'll help plant churches. They'll help establish churches, get on the right track to correct their ways and to help them seek God. But they also raise people in the faith through discipleship. Throughout these chapters, this is also where you'll see that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, starts referring to Saul as Paul. Now what you'll notice, and I'm not going to go into huge detail, is that Luke does this for clarity. Saul was also called Paul because in that culture they often had two names. Everyone had two names that they went by. That's why you'll see also in here that they, there's this guy named John also called Mark. John who was called Mark. They all had two names. So Saul and Paul, Paul was always his name, but he referred to himself as Saul. Until after his encounter with Christ, then he referred to himself as Paul. This is where you see this change, and it's because while they're preaching, they're bringing up Saul from the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. And Luke, as a way to better clarify who he's talking about when he's saying Saul did this and Saul did that and Saul and Saul and Saul and Saul and Saul, you know that he's not talking about the Saul from the road to Damascus. He's talking about Saul from the Old Testament. So this is used as clarity, but then Luke just continues on and calls him Paul. That's the ultra-condensed version. You're like, that was not condensed, that was condensed, all right? At the end of the chapter, they return to the church in Antioch, and then we get to chapter 15. So uh, pick up your Bibles, Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1, excuse me, and read the first 11 verses. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now I'm going to pause right there before we finish. Because right there, verse 6, this is proof that they had a good theology and doctrine. Because it was their culture Yes, you have to follow the law of Moses. Yes, you have to be circumcised. But right here, they're like, let's see what God's word actually says. Let's let's revert back to all of our teachings of Christ that we have when we were walking with him and see if this is true. Yes, it's our preference, but is this true? Right, so we continue, verse seven. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know some time ago, God made a choice 
among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to come before you, to hear your word spoken over us. And Lord, we just ask that you speak to us, that you speak directly to our hearts what we need to hear today. Lord, there are some people in here that are struggling, I know. There's some people in here that they're, they're doing really good and they're, they're going through life and they're, they're just killing it right now. But Lord, bring all of us together. Speak to our hearts to what we need to hear today. If that's encouragement, great. If it's conviction, great. But Lord, we just give this moment to you. And Lord, as the one who's up behind the, uh, the pulpit, podium, whatever you want to call it, Lord, I pray that you just speak through me as you only know how and as you always do. Lord, may I decrease as you increase in this moment. Lord, let no one leave today hearing what I said but what you said through me. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in Acts chapter 15, this is kind of a little bit a paraphrased version of what happened. Some people go to Judea, and that, from Judea, go up to Antioch. And they tell them, they tell the believers there, they're like, you have to be circumcised. You have to. If you're not, then you're not saved. In their cultural context, the early church is struggling with this idea. Last week, we talked about how they struggled with the idea of Gentiles coming to faith. They struggled with it because Gentiles didn't look like them. They didn't act like them. They ate bacon all the time, the heathens, right? And so they, they just, they, they struggled with it. And now they're struggling with, okay, now we've accepted the Gentiles, but they're also still not following the law. They're, they're still not circumcised. Jewish Christians at the time, they know that Christ fulfilled the law. They will, they will say and they will accept and they believe that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So in the law of Moses, they know there's not a need for animal sacrifice anymore. But they still see the law as holy and as a rule book for them to follow. And they're struggling with this idea. The Gentiles have never known this law before in their life. And so we need to make sure that they know the law. We need to make sure that they know all of the rules that we've been having to go under for all of these years. And they struggle with this because the law was meant for the Israelites. The law was meant for the Jewish people. The Gentiles are not under that law. They weren't created to be under that law. And it's because Christ came to fulfill the law so that we're no longer under, under the law, but we're under the faith. We're under the grace that Christ gives us. But they're struggling with this. And these people, these Gentiles, they're, they're believing, they're thriving, they're praying. They're like, man, this is amazing. I can't believe that someone would come and he would die for me. And he would rise again so that I could be risen into a new life. I can't believe that. And they're on fire. And then you have these religious people coming in and saying, hey, you have to be, sac or you have to be circumcised or you're not saved. So now you have a bunch of Gentiles in Antioch 
wondering if they're even saved now. Like, well, I thought the Spirit rested on me. I thought the Spirit fell upon me, but now I'm not so sure. Now, I trust that most of you know what circumcision is. If you don't, ask your neighbor. (laughs) Because they might know. And if they don't, then tell them to ask their neighbor what it means. But circumcision was this physical sign for men that they were set apart for God. And this was the only people that were doing this in the world at that time was Jewish people. And so it was very obvious who the Jews were, who the followers of Christ were. Now, there's no sign. There's no physical sign per se. And this is where the Jewish Christians are so, they're struggling with it because they're like, now they don't really look like a Christian anymore. Now, if you're anything like me, you're wondering, how would they know? How would they know if they're circumcised or not? Well, unlike us, they didn't have indoor plumbing. The Romans would eventually bring this, uh, this idea of indoor plumbing, but it was for the wealthy. But for generations before, they had public showers, they had rivers, and they had streams. And so it was very obvious when people would all go to the same stream to bathe, and you, you get the rest of it, okay? So, but it was a sign that you were saved. It was a sign that you were set apart, that you were holy. We, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about being set apart for God, it's, it's a drastic difference in the way that we live our lives versus someone else who, who's not of faith, who doesn't believe in God. And it has to be that way because if we look exactly like the world, then the world will think, well, I don't need Christ to begin with because these Christians look exactly like me. They're thriving just like I am. They're doing everything that I am. So why do I need God in the first place? Why do I need to be saved? Part of holiness is making sure that we are set apart, that we look different on the outside. This, for the Jewish Christians, for the Jewish Christian men, was that sign. Now that sign has been taken away. This is why they are struggling with it. And the Jewish Christians are like, wait a minute. So not only do we have to accept these heathens as Christians, but now they don't have to follow the same rules that we do. They don't have to have the same customs that we do. And they're like, I I don't know about that. We can't be having that. They got to get circumcised. They got to look the part. They got to look like us. They got to act like us to be us. See, the focus is no longer on Christ. It's about us. Now, to translate into our day and age, churches do the exact same thing. You'll look, you'll go to charismatic churches and they'll say, well, if you're not speaking in tongues, then you're not saved. If you're not speaking or praying in tongues, then you're not saved. If you don't worship like us, then you're probably not saved. Now, this works for both charismatic and Baptist churches, so don't get it all mixed up. Charismatic churches will say, if you're not jumping up and down and praising God and just, you know, everything, sunshine and rainbows, then, then you're not a Christian. You got to work on your faith so that you just express, everyone expresses emotions differently. Yes, worship is emotional, but everyone expresses emotions differently, so it looks different. In the same way with Baptist churches, if you're like this, 
all the time? What do Baptist people do? Look at you like. I'm not so sure that they're saved. They're just putting on a show. They're trying to show people that they're saved. They're trying to show people. It's all just a show. It's all about them. I'm not saying that there's not people like that, because there are. Some people like to hear themselves worship more than they like to worship God. I truly believe that. But oftentimes, that's what... I can't think of the word off the top of my head. But that's what diminishes the worshipful atmosphere. Is that you got people who are really expressive in their emotions, are really expressive in their worship, but if they're in a in a Baptist type of setting or like a conservative type of church, they're like, I don't I can't really express how I want to. And then in charismatic churches, there's the same people. Well, if I don't put on a show, then people aren't going to think that I'm saved. And so all of this self-doubt starts coming in. Am I saved? Am I really a Christian? Right? Here's another one. If you don't believe in our theology and doctrine, you aren't saved. I've heard that. It doesn't happen as much now uh, in, in my context, but I, I know that there are uh, Christians. I know that there are people not that long ago that if you didn't subscribe to the general Baptist doctrine, if you didn't subscribe to the Southern Baptist doctrine and theology, if you didn't do that, then you aren't saved. And some religions still hold that. Some denominations still hold that truth, right? If you never prayed the sinner's prayer, then you aren't saved. If you've never been baptized, then you aren't saved. Here's maybe a controversial one, and I've heard this. It's not like I'm making this up. I've heard this. If you haven't read your Bible all the way through once, you're not saved. The list could go on and on. And some of you are probably like, yeah, you know, you do need to get baptized. You do need to read your Bible all the way through. And I completely agree with you. You need to read your Bible all the way through, but not for salvation. You need to read it all the way through so that you know the story of God. Not because that is the way that you get saved. I know plenty of people, and there's a professor, I've talked about him before, because one of my professors in college told me about him. He goes, he's at Indiana University, which is already a disgusting school. And he, he's the professor of New Testament and Old Testament studies, and he's an atheist. He has read the Bible through and through. He probably knows more about the Bible than all of us sitting in this room, and he doesn't believe it. Just because you've read, just because you've studied it, doesn't mean that you are a follower. You do need to read it. You do need to pray. You do need to get baptized when you have the opportunity, but not because it will save you, because it's the fruit of what Christ has done in you. So your salvation is not based on works. Thank the Lord. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Because if it was based on works, all of us would be messed. All of us would be inheriting the kingdom of hell. None of us would be in heaven. None of us would have that hope of the resurrection if it was based on works. So salvation is not based on works. It's not based on what you do, if you do what the church wants you to do, or if you worship the way, or if you act this way. It's not on how well you read your Bible. It's not on how well you pray. It's not whether or not you've been baptized. Your salvation is based on your faith because of the grace of Christ. And in Acts chapter five, or in 15, in verse eight, it says, God know, who knows the heart, 
showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us, for he purified their hearts by faith. When Peter is talking about this, what he's saying is God accepted them. Is that not good enough for you? God loved them and he, he poured out his presence on them. He, he proved to everyone that he wanted them, right? Peter references what happened, what we talked about last week. He sent me to go to these people. He sent me to go to the Gentiles and they were saved. They were saved just like we were. So why are we having such a hard time believing that God wants them? Believing that they're part of us. Verse 10, he's like, we're trying to put all these extra requirements in for salvation, but salvation is by the grace of God through faith. Like we couldn't even follow the law for ourselves. Our ancestors couldn't do it. We couldn't follow our own rules. And now we're expecting them to follow it. We believe it's by the grace of Jesus that we're saved. And scripture says the room fell silent. But this happens in churches too. We see people that we know their backstory. And when they say that they're a Christian, unless we see a complete 180 degree turn in an instant, we doubt. Or we struggle with doubt. I'll give you a few examples. When Kanye West proclaimed he was a Christian, he released an entire album. Now, you don't have to like rap, but he, re he released an entire album dedicated to Jesus. I think the, I, uh, the album was even titled King Jesus. And all of it, all of the, the rap songs, I listened to the whole thing, right? It, there were some cuss words in it, so I'm, you know, I repent, right? But there is, it was his story about how he came to faith. It was his story about how he came to know who God is. But I saw Christians and I, uh, on Facebook and in my life say, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. When Justin Bieber did it a few years ago, a few years before Kanye West, he proclaimed that he was a Christian. He started going to church. He started actually taking college-level Bible classes because he was that committed. Christians were like, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. We know what type of songs he's been singing. We know what he's done in his past, getting all, all up in those drugs and all up in Hollywood. We'll see We'll see how long it lasts. And there's always this communication that we've had when we say those type of things of it's not going to. We just want to see how long they pretend to be a Christian. And so there's doubt. There's immediate doubt in that. But some of them, I think what they actually meant, they might not have communicated it the best, but I think what they meant is we'll see if they start bearing good fruits. And this is where the book of James comes in. Because in the book of James, we, it talks a lot about works as a result of your faith. So uh, what they're saying is we'll see if the change that they claim happened in their life, surrendering their life to Christ shows in the way that they walk, in the way that they talk, in the works that they do, and if the fruit of the Spirit lines up with what they said happened on the inside. Because when you're saved by grace through faith, God continually works in and through your life to the point that you look more like Christ every single day, every single year. The salvation is there. It's secure. The works 
take time. And we're so works-driven because that's what we can see. That's what we can touch. That's what we can feel. And if the works don't look like a Christian, then we immediately think, well, the salvation's not there. No, the salvation might be there. It just might be taking them a little bit longer to, to get the works part of it in. Or they were never taught. They had the salvation, and they looked around, and no one seemed to care that they were getting themselves into trouble. No one seemed to be investing in their life, and so they continued to stray away. They're still looking like a Christian. They, know, they play the church games. They know what it looks like to look like a Christian. Go to church on most Sundays, right? Say that you're praying for people, even if you're not, to, to constantly check on people and say, oh, yes, I'll be praying for you. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but then, you know, that's the works. That's what we see. And so we think we're a great Christian, but their salvation may have never even happened to begin with. They might have just been looking the part. The reason I'm bringing all this up is when I was reading through and I was studying, I really just felt deep into my soul that there's multiple people in here who don't feel like their salvation is secure. I don't know who you are. Maybe it's someone online. Someone doesn't feel like their salvation is secure. They're wondering if they're even saved. They're wondering if they're even a follower of Christ. I don't know who you are. I don't know how old you are, how, how young you are. I don't know any of it. All I know is that that's what's been placed in my heart. And I want you to know this. You may not look like your ideal Christian. You may not look like everyone else. You may not seem like a Christian right now. The works will come. They'll, they'll provide a way. And you'll begin to look like a Christian as you mature in your faith. But if you believe that Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again for the forgiveness of your sins, if you believe that with all of your heart and you are willing to surrender your life to serving Christ, and serving the church, and being a part of the bride of Christ, with it, which is the church. Your salvation is secure. You're saved. That's it. You're saved. Now work towards being more like Christ. But your salvation is there. As General Baptist, I, I know people who struggle with this because we do believe that you can lose your salvation. We believe in this thing called backsliding, and it, it comes from several different scriptures. I'm not going to get into them. But we believe that you can lose it. And so since we've expressed that belief for so long, there's a lot of general Baptists who don't believe, who, who are struggling with, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm actually a follower of God. Because, you know, if, if I slip a cuss word in then, and then get run over by a car, I didn't have time to, for, to ask for forgiveness, so maybe I won't make it to heaven. And they live in fear. I know people like this, right? I'm not just making this up. You can lose your salvation. I do believe that. I do believe in black backsliding. But it's not because of a mistake. It's because of a continuous cycle of, I refuse to give this sin up. I refuse to let God control this area of my life. I refuse to acknowledge that Christ exists. 
I refuse to stop working on this temptation that keeps getting me down. I'm just going to give in to the temptation. I'm just going to let the temptation run its course. And when you do that till the end of your life, where you're like, hey, I don't believe in God anymore. God doesn't have to have control over my life. I, I can control my own life. I can control my own destiny because that's what the world says. Go be your best self. No, go be who God called you to be. Go be who you are in Christ. But as we get so influenced by the world, we're like, you know, it's fine. This temptation is just going to run its course and I'm just going to lean into it, right? It's fun. It excites me for a moment. Yeah, it makes me feel a little empty, but in that moment, it feels really good. It makes me look really good. That's when you start to lose your salvation but it's up until the end of your life. Because we also believe that there's no one that's too far gone. That if you walk away, there's always the prodigal son that can walk right back. You can always walk right back to Christ. But if you walk away, if the prodigal son story ended very differently, and the prodigal son was eaten out of the pig slop, and he's like, I'm not going back to my dad. I'm not going back to him. He's the one that let me do all these things. He's the one that gave me the money. He wants me to live like this. That story would have ended very, very differently because he never returned to his father. Your salvation is secure because you want to stay near to the father. Yes, there are times where you walk a little bit away. But as long as you're always focused on coming back to him, drawing closer to him, even when the world messes you up sometimes, even when temptation slips in, you didn't really realize it, You're always seeking to come back to him. Your salvation is secure. And I want to tell you one thing, church, as I I close up this message. It's important for us as the church to find those people and invest in their lives. To remind them that their salvation is secure, but here's how you walk with Christ. That's exactly what the early church did in Acts chapter 15. Verses 19 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, this is the counsel, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, by sexual immorality, by the meat of strangled animals from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What they did, as you'll read throughout chapter 15, is they, they write this letter telling the Gentile Christians, this is how you walk with God. This is how you walk with Christ daily. But they didn't just send a letter. They sent people back. They said, here's some people and they're going to invest in your life. And they encourage them and they strengthen them in their faith. What this means for us is that, you know, we have this goal, we have this vision this year that we're going to reach 20% of our average attendance here. Our average attendance, 20% of our average attendance this year is going to be baptized and be made new, be born again. That we're going to see 20% of the lives in here radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and baptized in that baptistry. Right now, I, I calculated the month of January, that's looking about 16 baptisms this year. If we really want to see that happen, and I do, and I think it will as we continue to press into God's presence, as we continue to pray for that, as we continue to go and reach people, 
as the church, we have to have a way to teach them to walk. And that's why it's been part of my goal this year is to have a discipleship path. Now, I'm working on it. It's not done yet, but it will be done and it will be launched this year. And some of you will have the opportunity to walk through it so that we can get out all of the little bugs and make sure that whenever people do get saved and they are changed and transformed by the gospel, that they have solid biblical truth. That they know what they need to do to work towards a life abundant with Christ. But we as the church, we have to invest in them. Even if that means pouring some money in, pouring a lot of our time in, we have to invest in them. Because there's a lot of, you know, because I don't really know very many Jewish people around here, but there's a lot of Gentile people around here that don't look like us, they don't act like us, but they need us. Because they need Christ. And if we truly believe that Christ is working in and through us, then we need to go. I can pray all day long for people to come to know Christ. But God's always going to be calling me, yeah, that's why I created you. That's why he created you. You're the answer to the prayers, to go and reach the people. But as a church, we have to come together as a community. Not one person can do it on their own. We have to come together as a community to continue to lift each other up and to continue to disciple one another. Heavenly Father and gracious God, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment that you've given us to put our attention on your word and what you've called us to do today. Lord, I pray that whoever in here might be doubting their salvation, doubting their Christianity, doubting if they're even a good follower of Christ, a follower of you, Lord, that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding that says, no, my daughter, no, my son, you are secure in me for there is nothing on earth in heaven or in the powers of hell that can separate you from my love. Lord, I pray in this moment that you rest on them and you let them know that their salvation is secure, that they are going to inherit the kingdom of God one day. But Lord, also encourage and strengthen and convict us to continue to grow in who you are, to continue to walk with you, and that us who have walked for a long time, that we can teach others teach new believers to walk with you too. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing, all that you've done in this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray.